Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton with you now. Very much appreciate you hanging out. An honor and a pleasure to get the chance to chat with all of you across the country today. We've got a lot to discuss. Uh, you know, usually I try to focus on on policy and, and not the narrative. Um, I try to focus on what matters in our day-to-day lives and not just what the media wants us to talk about. This is why I have made the conscious decision over the course of many months not to get too bogged down into what's going on with the Russia collusion investigation. I'll talk about it a little bit, but I won't go because it's a lot of nothing and who cares. Um, But I'll still look at it. That said, today you have a policy discussion that I think is less important than a cultural discussion or discussion about the narrative right now in the media. On the policy side, you got taxes. We'll get there. We'll talk about that. And you have the wall, which is about policy, but it also is symbolic. There's a lot more there. But taxes is just straight up policy. And tax policy matters to me a lot. But before I go there... I want to talk to you about the manufactured moral crisis in this country right now, because that's truly what's going on. We are in the midst of a moral panic, a a manufactured moral crisis. And while a lot of us can just ignore it, it will have ramifications. It should be met on the battlefield of ideas and blown to smithereens, if you will. It should be annihilated because this is very dangerous stuff and it doesn't have any outer limits. This notion that we have to go back and erase, eliminate, rewrite, pave over, whatever it may be, different parts of history has got to stop. It feels incredibly Soviet because the Soviets did exactly this kind of thing. It feels very totalitarian because totalitarian regimes are quite concerned with the past. They view it as a means of controlling the future. So when I tell you that here in my own hometown, there is a battle brewing over the statue of Christopher Columbus in Columbus Circle, it is a symbol, literally it is because it's a big statue, but a symbol of this debate now, which is at the heart of progressive mobilization. That's the way to think about this. Remember when I told you about Occupy Wall Street? They have to find a a thing, a place, an incident to mobilize around. And then the, there were Occupy movements all across the country, and it was almost a brand, an intellectual virus that had spread. It started in Zuccotti Park here in New York City, but there was Occupy Oakland, Occupy San Francisco, Occupy Boston, Occupy D.C., Occupy, Occupy, Occupy. Then you had Ferguson and Mike Brown and Black Lives Matter, and that was the rallying point for the progressive left. 
And now you have Antifa, the anti-fascist movement, and that has become a rallying point, but they need a target set. And despite their best efforts to make the alt-right seem like a much bigger, more important movement than it is, it's not enough. The alt-right as a national boogeyman is not substantial. They can't just manufacture alt-right people to pop up anywhere holding up signs with swastikas on them and acting like idiots. But they can point to history. They can point to statues or memorials or monuments and say, see, that is a manifestation of white supremacy. We have to take down that symbol. And they use that as a means of getting everyone to have that discussion And they feel like they can create a certain perception, which they can. And that perception will be molded into political action, which they do. And when they have political action, they will achieve more political power and so on and so forth. So this is a manufactured moral crisis. We're in the middle of it. And Columbus Circle, Christopher Columbus, right now, that statue may come down. You have Mayor Bill de Blasio. I can't help myself but say formerly... Warren Wilhelm, guten Tag, everyone. Changed his name because, you know, hey, Billy de Blasio, he's my buddy. We have beers with Billy. Whereas Warren is like, I just, it's a Wiener schnitzel and I like to wear the Lederhosen. You know, Warren's not really getting people fired up in New York City for a political race, you know. So he changed his name. Okay, look, changing your name is, lots of people change their name, but I just think the fact that his name is Warren Wilhelm is pretty funny. Uh, but Bill de Blasio, I think he did he honeymoon in Nicaragua. I get him and Bernie Sanders. I love the Soviet Union. I was there for my honeymoon. I get them confused uh, in terms of where the, I, I didn't de Blasio hang out with the Sandinistas or something at one point. Right. Yeah. He's like, hey, I'm here from Yale Sandinistas. I want to help your glorious revolutionary commie stuff. So whatever he was doing, he was down there for a little while. And de Blasio is a very far left guy. No question about it. It's amazing. I would have actually, if I had stayed at the NYPD, severed with the CIA, stayed with the NYPD, I would have eventually been working for this guy, which is terrifying. But anyway, uh, but he's saying that it might have to come down because of Christopher Columbus, he is a bad man. I mean, I don't know. You know, he's he's Genoese. Uh, I, I don't know what the accent was like in 15th century Genoa, but... He was sailing under the banner of uh, the Spanish crown. As we know, the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know all that stuff, right? And then a lot of terrible things happened. The age of exploration was incredible from a geopolitical perspective. But yes, if you go back and you do... And it's fascinating reading. Go back and read. Maybe I should do some of this, actually. You know, I do a lot of... Uh, cross and crescent battles between uh, you know, the forces of the Islamic conquest and Christendom. And I'm going to be doing one of those coming up, by the way. Oh, spoiler. Uh, give it some time. But they, yes, if you go back and you look at Pizarro in what is now Peru against the Incas and Cortez against the Aztecs and Columbus and a lot of really, a lot of really bad stuff happened. I, and I'm not pretending that it didn't. But this was a long time ago. And we don't celebrate Christopher Columbus because he was so nice to the natives. We don't celebrate Christopher Columbus because he was a a feminist and a progressive. We're just like, this dude got on a ship or a few ships and, you know, decided to connect the biggest landmass in the world with the new world. And it was kind of a big deal. Yes, Leif Erikson, I was right about that the other day, technically got there first with the Vikings. But the Vikings were like, like they they. 
they got out of there. The Vikings sound like the Swedish chef, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. It's true, though. I don't know if we need to stay here. So they uh, they got out of there. Um, but now people are all upset about Columbus because of all the bad stuff with the, with, that, with the Native Americans. And <clears throat> I asked this today, and I think it was a fair question. Um, do we get to talk about the widespread practice of uh, Native Native American enslavement of other Native Americans, you know, so uh, you know the the Pawnee enslaving the Sioux, uh, various tribes of the Iroquois Nation enslaving the Huron. I mean, do we get do we talk about that or no? We just we act like there was a a, a progressive left in this country that was living in harmony, the Native Americans. And, you know, of course, you know, and, and you'll you'll hear this stuff about how, oh, we actually stole our constitution from the Iroquois Confederation. And, you know, I don't know. And that there were matriarchal societies, meaning societies where women, the, the native population, the women were much more important. And so they were a symbol. I mean, whatever. Right. It's some of this stuff is tough to gauge because there are no written records of it before the Europeans arrived. So there is that. Uh, but nonetheless, we won't talk about that because this is an oppression narrative, a victimology narrative, and the politics of victimhood are incredibly potent. The Democratic Party is basically built on them. So here we are now. Christopher Columbus may come down. This big statue, which, by the way, it's right out in front of CNN, too, which will be so that'll be entertaining. Uh, they may pull this statue down. Um, we already had one statue in Baltimore vandalized with a sledgehammer. Uh, that was originally that that monument to Christopher Columbus in Baltimore went up in 1792. Someone decided it. Yeah, someone decided to take a sledgehammer to it because, you know, history, man, don't like it. That's what people are saying. They're, they don't like history. They don't like understanding history. I, I just feel like, you know, what's wrong with if, if there's a there's a Christopher Columbus statue, we see that guy found America. And, you know, it's really interesting. It's a really complicated character, actually had a very. Uh, a very racist view of the natives and, you know, was was fine with slavery, whatever it may be. Fine. Great. That's why we have books and discussions and everything else. But let's not pretend like it's not a big deal to find the new world. Right. I mean, I isn't that where does it stop? Where does it stop? That's what I would ask uh, Bill de Blasio as mayor of New York City. Where does it stop? Uh, you may recall that, in fact, the Duke of York is the person for whom New York is named. It was in honor of the Duke of York. People say, well, was it? his name was James. It was James II. He became a monarch. He had some problems with Parliament, by the way. Whole separate discussion for another day, if you're curious about that stuff. Glorious revolution and all that. Uh, but James II was, at one point, the head of a major African slave trading company. So New York City is, based on the books that we have now, named for somebody that was involved in the slave trade. As I like to tell you, Elihu Yale, Yale University, I mean, I can, I can do this all day. But if Christopher Columbus is up for grabs now, do we get rid of the national holiday? Do we decide that there's no—what is the outer limit here? What do we call the District of— Columbia. I mean, you know, go down the list. What happens? How, how do we come to grips with the history? Is it, See, what I want to know is, is it just now that we are erasing history? We're not even... It, it, see, it started out as we shouldn't have Confederate generals elevated on public grounds maintained by taxpayer dollars in places of honor and prominence. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I, I get that. I get that. 
War memorials? No, no. People fought and died there. People were conscripted. A lot of stuff going on. A war memorial is just people died here. This was a war. We should be aware of this. But big statue of somebody on uh, public grounds that he's not somebody we necessarily want to be celebrating today. I get that. But remember, on publicly on, on publicly funded land, on an issue of uh, real political salience, I mean, something that really gets people's attention. But even when you start to apply that logic, see, I, I trip myself up. I said, like, well, okay, Christopher Columbus, we're, you know, what are we celebrating? With a Confederate general, people would say you're celebrating the Confederacy. And so that's, and I know then people said, no, you're celebrating states' rights. And, and I've, I don't have time for that today. And I know people have very passionate, that's, that's not where I'm going with this. But you see, it gets complicated quickly. I'm the first to admit it. All of a sudden people go, oh, but what about, but Christopher Columbus, I mean, Really? Oh, yeah, really? He he may have to come down. This is what it's come to. Uh, but I should note that there are people out there that are standing athwart this because the left forgets to realize that there are some groups that are that have a particular affinity for Christopher Columbus. Italian-Americans, in fact, view him as a hero. And within Italian-American circles, still, he is celebrated even beyond what I think is the standard in uh, in American communities across the country. I went to a press conference today. I did a little bit of field reporting because I felt like it. I figured, why not? I went down to a press conference that was on the steps of City Hall here in New York City where they were talking about whether the monument should come down. And this is just a, a version of the same debate we're having in places all across the country. But things have gotten out of control. It, I've even, I've got my, I've got so much more on this, and let me say we'll talk about this for a bit, and then I will yeah we'll get into tax reform and wah, wah, what's the rate I'll get into the tax reform stuff for sure it matters we'll talk about the wall we'll talk about the terror cell in Barcelona I've got updates for you on that uh, also very interesting if I can get to it tweet from the ACLU that you'll want to hear about so we have a varied show coming your way but I this this subject the, winning the culture means you win the country. The left knows that. They've known that all along. And the culture, the, the, the fight, with, not within the culture, the war on the culture that's happening right now is, I think, the single most important conversation in the country. Because, yeah, taxes, it matters, but we're going to have plenty of time to talk about taxes. And that's nothing new. Right? We've been talking about that for a long time. Uh, whether we should erase parts of our past, destroy statues, destroy works of art, destroy public monuments, because some people feel triggered by them or offended by them i just don't know what the outer limits of that are i don't, I don't know who we can celebrate anymore and I'll, I'll give you some examples of that in just a few minutes we're gonna hit a break here 844-900-BUCK 844-900-2825 am i right am i wrong am i way off is my bernie sanders impersonation actually my best impersonation these are all the key questions of the day my friends into the oldest monument to christopher columbus in north america Christopher Columbus symbolizes the initial invasion of European capitalism into the Western Hemisphere. Columbus initiated a centuries-old wave of terrorism, murder, genocide, rape, slavery, ecological degradation, and capitalist exploitation of labor in the Americas. That Colombian wave of destruction continues on the backs of indigenous, African-American, and brown people. 
Racist monuments to slave owners and murderers have always bothered me. Baltimore's poverty is concentrated in African-American households, and these statues are just an extra slap in the face. They were built in the 20th century in response to a movement for African-Americans' dignity. What kind of a culture goes to such lengths to build such hate-filled monuments? What kind of a culture clings to these monuments in 2017? The culture of white supremacy preceded the United States. It's at the foundation of U.S. culture business, bureaucracies, and psychology. Observe how vehemently Republican and Democratic misleaders defend genocidal terrorists like Christopher Columbus and George Washington. White supremacy and the systems that sustain it must be replaced, or people will continue to suffer and the planet will continue to die. That was a video released by some left-wing activists, registered Democrats, I'm willing to bet, uh, after There were some statues destroyed, notably the Christopher Columbus statue in Baltimore that I mentioned. One line, I mean, a lot of lines, and that really stuck out to me. And I think that individual and that voiceover from that video that was posted online is articulating a widely held belief on the left. And he says it. He said, quote, the foundation of U.S. culture is white supremacism. That's really what's at stake here. That concept, the left is trying to convince enough of the country that they can have their way and destroy our culture, that our culture is based in white supremacy, which is just an enormous and evil lie. But that's what it is. I mean, we live in this uh, incredibly diverse, multi-ethnic, multilingual country of 320 million people who, at the end of the day, actually get along really well. And are incredibly prosperous, and despite all the polls and stuff you'll read from the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world is envy of us in one way or another, and most of most of the world is envy of us, envious of us across the board. We've got a country with people from all over the world here. All kinds of folks, and all Americans are welcome. We are a country based on a belief system, and yet we're told, as this individual says, the foundation of U.S. culture is white supremacy. I, I will I will return to this lie, this great lie of white supremacy as central to everything about America uh, later on. I'm going to try to remind myself because it was a sm- it was small in the sense that it was a something I just saw on social media from the ACLU, but it really stuck out in my mind. Uh, because this is now, this is the movement among the left. So they're saying that Christopher Columbus is white supremacy. The founding fathers are white supremacy. Everything about this country is based in white supremacy. I, I they d- don't ever have a discussion about how we fought a an, an incredibly bloody civil war to end slavery in this country. That we went through uh, Jim Crow and the civil rights movement and have come out the other side, the envy of the world. That, that is not the narrative that they're telling at all. In fact, they think that a, a, a better way forward for us is to reject, not, not just re- reject parts of our past in terms of celebrating them, but just reject our past altogether. It's all racist. It's all evil. It's all terrible. And th- this has a lot of momentum right now in progressive circles. Media certainly has no problem with this. Media is not standing up and saying, what are you guys doing? You're, you're going to destroy... Monuments? You're going to pull that? The mayor of the biggest city in the country is like, we're going to pull down Christopher Columbus. By the way, what do we do with the federal holiday for Columbus Day? Today we still hold him in a place of honor. We will continue to yes. do so. Yes. And we yes. will continue yes. to fight yes. to make sure that Columbus Circle remains Columbus Circle. Yes. 
that was earlier today. I went to that rally, uh, press conference, whatever you call it. It was like about 50 people on the steps of City Hall, bringing me back to my old my old uh, reporter days at the Blaze. And I was down at City Hall for Occupy Wall Street stuff then. But they were talking about Christopher Columbus. And, and I hadn't anticipated this, even though I'm from New York City and the Columbus Day Parade is a huge thing here. I, I'm going to tell you guys a little secret about me. I tell you a lot of secrets about me, actually. And this will not surprise any of you at all. I'm just not a parade guy. Not a parade. A- unless it's for veterans, I just don't care. I ju- it's just not my thing. I don't... If you if you love parades, if you think a great parade is, you know, if that's all well and good. I, I don't take away from anyone that they should be able to enjoy a parade. I, I personally, though, just feel like it's a lot of standing and like, when's the next, like, float going to come by? I don't know. I'm just not a parade person. So the Columbus Day Parade, I have, I, I can't remember. I don't know if I've ever been to it in New York City. I probably have been by accident and been uh, muttering curses under my breath about how it's like hard to get across the street because they shut down parts of the city when there are big parades here. But they're saying that they, oh, one thing I didn't anticipate, as, as I was saying before, is that this has real resonance in the Italian-American community. But what the Italian-American community doesn't themselves anticipate, I think, uh, and I saw this today with some of the local city councilmen and you know, representing a Staten Island I saw there and some places where there's a substantial Italian-American community here in New York City, is that in the current environment, in the current identity politics environment, Italians just considered white. No, no one, no one thinks it, it's almost like saying, well, like for someone like me to say, well, you know, you know, the Irish, you know, a long time ago, Irish need not apply. And you know, I was the Irish is like, you know, we're, we had a rough time in this country, which I should note is in, entirely true. The Irish were treated terribly during different parts of the and, the, you know, the British basically watched them starve, you know, during the potato famine. They could have helped. Uh, but. That doesn't right now. There's no political resonance with that at all. I mean, you start whining about, you know, oppression against Irish people from like, and everyone's like, yeah, whatever, whatever there, you know, uh, Mr. Irish guy. Well, I'm only really half, I guess I should do that ancestry thing. I don't know. I'm sure I'll find out that I'm maybe I'll find out I'm like 5% Viking. No, maybe. I hope so. Then the Swedish chef impressions will get better. But uh, they they brought up an interesting little part of history, though. If you want to know how bad it was at one point in this country for Italian-Americans, this stuff is all now... But they're, uh, they're, well, there's still anti-Semitism in the country, but uh, there were... Uh, there were terrible periods in our history, in, in American history, never mind global history, um, about Jewish oppression in this country. There were there was Catholic oppression in this country. There was Italian oppression in this country. People forget what the KKK stands for. Catholic, even though it's a misspelling, was one of them. People forget this now. The Catholics, Papists. I guess my people were uh, were facing all kinds of discrimination. And why, why am I bringing this up? Well, because the, the uh, effort to keep Columbus Circle as Columbus Circle and keep the statues up by saying Italian Americans face depression, it is not it's not going to get very far because people in the social justice movement just the Italian is white. They don't Italian is white. That doesn't you're just a white guy. And in fact, Italian is part of white privilege and is even part of the. Uh, culture of white supremacy, as that progressive before said. Um, a little digression into history, though. You did have somebody today at the protest bring up something that 
I feel like very few people know this or remember it. If I asked you to tell me what the biggest recorded mass lynching in history was, what would you would you know? What would you say? What would you guess? Well, it in fact involved Italian Americans, as one of the gentlemen today down at City Hall told us. President at that time, Roosevelt called it a rather good thing. The New York Times said that rattlesnakes, street cuts, and murderers are better than Italian Americans during that time. And the following, during that course of that year, as we heard from other speakers, one of the largest, if not the largest, Italian newspaper here in New York organized a grassroots campaign where they collected small dollar contributions, which we hear a lot about these days, where people who didn't have much means to themselves, as we heard the story of the Italian immigrants, they came here with nothing very little. So he talks about the, the money that they raised for a statue of Columbus there. Um, but before that, he's discussing the March 14th, 1891 lynchings in New Orleans, in, in uh, Louisiana, where, uh, where there was the murder of police chief. This is back in 1891, David Hennessy. And this was already at a time when the Italians, Italian-Americans, there had been big waves of Italian-American immigration into the country. Although it was different then as well, because a third of them went back to the home country. There was no welfare system here. People couldn't didn't like it here, couldn't make it here. And they went back. Not anymore. If you come, you stay pretty much. Right. It's all changed now. Uh, I, I spent time at the, the Tenement Museum here in New York City, and I went through what was, you know, because I'm trying to get a little bit in touch with my roots, I guess, this this tour of what it was like for Irish immigrants to New York City in slums. They call it tenements in slums in the uh, 1880s and 1870s. And, you know, you had people that couldn't feed their children. You had children dying of malnutrition, babies dying of malnutrition. This is on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Rough time. You know, there, there was no office to go to where you're like, where's my check? That didn't exist. Back to the 1891 lynching. So police chief David Hennessy is murdered and the Italian immigrant wave is already considered to be part of the uh, of a criminal underclass. And they sent out and, you know, you go into the history of this and I could spend a lot more time on it. There have been books written about it. I think there was a Christopher Walken movie based on the event and they rounded up a whole bunch of local Italians in New Orleans. Those Italians stood trial. They were either acquitted or declared mistrials. And then a mob gathered together, broke into the jail, and murdered 11 of them. Biggest mass lynching, recorded mass lynching uh, in U.S. history. They broke down the door with a battering ram. Uh, And the uh, prison warden at the time told them all to just basically go hide. Some of them were, survived because they, they hid. But you had a, a bunch of Italian-Americans, uh, 11 Italian-Americans, murdered there. And what was in some ways even more shocking to our conscience, I think, now, because, yeah, mob violence, it can happen. And clearly, we th- when we think of lynchings, we think of the lynchings of African-Americans in the South, which went on for uh, for you know, centuries in this country, but you 
wouldn't suspect, based on the way things are now, that anybody would be writing in the New York Times about how, yeah, lynching that those 11 Italian-Americans who were innocent, well, not innocent, but not guilty in a court of law, went through the court process. Yeah, that was a good thing. President Roosevelt was like, yeah, they, they probably deserved it. I, I mean, uh, you know, or sorry. Yeah, well, he wasn't president at the time, but you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. There you go. That's uh, that's the way that it, that's the way that it went. So Italian Americans were uh, were very much a, an underclass at the time, but they're not anymore. They're not considered underclass at all. And so when they say, "Hey, hold on a second, Columbus is about uh, our is about our pride, is about Italian American pride," nope, it's just white supremacy. It's all white supremacy. How crazy does this get? And this is what the left says. How crazy does it get? The I don't know much about college football. USC has a horse named uh, Traveler. And Traveler is also the name of Robert E. Lee's horse. USC has had this horse for, I don't know, it's like Traveler 11 is this white horse that comes out and, you know, you got the Trojan on his back and yay. Uh, the fascination with college football is something that I, I know some of you are already booing me. I don't understand. I watch professional football, but that's cool. Um, but Traveler the horse, because it's Robert E. Lee, th- that might have to that might have to go. They're, they're now thinking, be, it's not named for Robert E. Lee's horse, but because it's the same name. I mean, this is Robert Lee from ESPN all over again, but with a horse. It's crazy. But people are pushing it. They, they, they see this is a wave. This is a movement. They are using the past to influence and, if they can, dictate the present. That's what's going on here. That's what this is all about. Uh, one, one more that I, I just thought was particularly wow. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a restaurateur whom I actually used to think was, was pretty good TV and seemed like a nice guy, but I've since found out he's a, he's a real progressive. He's a loud progressive, likes to lecture people on, on all things leftist, uh, named Tom Calicchio. And he has changed the name of his restaurant here in New York City. And I know this is just, but this is how far it's spread, right? You're like, Bucket's one restaurant. Well, he's a famous restaurateur. He's a, he's the top chef judge, the bald top chef judge. Those of you who are, I used to love watching, especially when I was in the CIA, I used to love watching Top Chef. I was like, anything, I just want to look at food and people preparing food and tough to politicize it. But I'm sure now, you know, you, you turn on Top Chef and they're like, well, like today on Top Chef, a lecture on transgender rights. I mean, you can't escape this stuff anywhere now. But Tom Colicchio has changed the name of a restaurant in the Beekman Hotel here in New York City, the restaurant was called Fowler and Wells. They've just now. This just happened because Fowler and Wells was the name of the offices that had been there in the mid 1800s. Well, Fowler and Wells was a publishing house, so they were publishing books. So they thought it was kind of a cool historical tie-in to name the restaurant in 2017 after the publishing house that had been there in the 1840s, 1850s, whatever it was. But part of what Fowler and Wells did was publish books on what is called phrenology. Phrenology is a pseudoscience. It is a discredited non-scientific science. It's like alchemy or astrology, although some people are like astrology is the real thing, Buck. Um, But it's the measurement of skulls as a means of understanding brain power and IQ, which even as somebody with a really big head, I can tell you is total nonsense, right? I mean, this, this is like, you know, the 
how how nicely lined up your ears are determines whether you're a good person. I mean, it's just. But for a little while, it, it had it was a, it had a kind of a, a cult following, and some people it was a pseudoscience, right? It was something people were like, if we if we measure skull size, we'll know, we'll know how smart people are. As a as somebody who as a baby, and my mom my mom tends to listen to the show, which is partly why I have to be so polite and nice to everyone all the time, because otherwise. Mama sexed him and call and yell at me. It's true. She's like, she's like, you be nice to your callers. I'm always very nice to callers, mom. Uh, but she will tell you that when I was a baby, my head was so big that they have to, they had to measure it with a measuring tape because they were worried that it was actually too big and that there was maybe fluid buildup or there was a problem. That's how big. That's why when I say, his head's like Sputnik, it's huge. He's going to cry in his giant pillow, which is from How I Married an Axe Murderer. It's because when I was, my head was so big. And my mom actually does a hilarious impersonation of Baby Buck where the head is so heavy that I would like sort of sit up for a second and then they would fall down because I couldn't, my little neck muscles. Yeah. Point being, phrenology is crap. Okay. It's, but no one even knows what phrenology is anymore. No one knows what this publishing house is. A restaurant's name is a huge part of the value. And Tom Colicchio is changing the name of a publishing house from the 1840s because they published some books on phrenology. Wow. This is where we are now. I mean, just wait until people discover that, you know. Like the Vikings sports team. Vikings were all about, you know, rape, loot, and pillage. I mean, you know, just wait. And, and slavery, enslaving people. And n- nothing is safe. Nothing is going to be okay. We're going to have to change. No part of history, unless you are actively taking the side and the argument of, of an oppressed class and forgetting that, by the way, every oppressed class that I can think of in history that was big enough at some point probably tried to oppress somebody else, like their neighbors, right? I mean, everyone at some point, you know, talk about the Native American tribes and all the terrible stuff. Uh, they were kind of in a perpetual state of warfare, right? We all understand that. We're all, they're all fighting each other all the time. That right? That's, yeah, we get that. Uh, you know, people like, you know, the Aztecs, Cortez did bad things to them. They were also the human sacrifice people, by the way. And they weren't sacrificing themselves. They were grabbing neighboring tribes and sacrificing them. So, you know, everyone does messed up stuff. Doesn't mean you celebrate the messed up stuff, but let's not pretend that any one group or culture or ethnicity or anything else has uh, a, a special claim to doing bad stuff because everyone does some pretty bad stuff. You go back far enough, I'm telling you, you'll find. I want to do a whole show on the uh, Islamic slave trade in Europeans and Americans, which no one ever talks about, went on for centuries. They got as far north. Islamic slave traders would go as far north as Iceland, everybody, to literally steal people, particularly women, out of the village to bring them back to North Africa for the harems, which is a sex slave. But... They don't teach that in school, do they? I'll teach it to you here in the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with your team. Thank you for uh, hanging out in the Freedom Hut. Speaking of Freedom Hut, you can get a Freedom Hut t-shirt. You can get Team Buck t-shirts, Shields High t-shirts, hats even. Uh, all of the above at uh, bucksexton.com slash store. Uh, so do do check that out. And also, please, the podcast is on iTunes. Buck Sexton with America Now is how you can listen there. Share it with a friend. Be like, hey, there's a show. You should listen to it. It's not the same thing every night. Republicans are sellouts. Blah, blah. The media's mean to Trump. Right. We get it. Okay. There's other stuff to talk about, too. And with that in mind, let's go to calls, because I said I would take them. Uh, And we'll take them in order. People have been holding for a very long time, which is kind. I appreciate that. Uh, John in North Carolina's WPTI. What's going on, John? 
Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I think I think there's a, a bigger picture of, of everything that's going on with uh, with the monuments thing. We know that uh, George Soros and company, and even Obama and company, uh, uh, do not like America. We also know that uh, from a number of websites all across the web, you can uh, find that uh, Soros has even uh, paid some people to be on retainer uh, to uh, be ready to go here and there to uh, to protest. And then you you find the intersection also with the Southern Poverty Law Center with their $300 million war chest. And then you lump in the media. And I think that there may be just a, a, a group uh, plan here to maybe just cause uh, maybe just short of actual civil war because they really would like to see this country go down and all the freedoms go away. Well, you know, you do have uh, you had Don Lemon the other night on CNN say Trump is pushing for a civil war, so that rhetoric is now is now being normalized more uh, all, all across the board. You have mainstream anchors saying that there's a civil war coming. Of course, he's blaming Trump. You're saying it's, it's coming from the other side. And Soros, he likes to pay the protesters. Unless Soros is um, very left-wing. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think that these activist groups are uh, tied together in ways that are often obscured on purpose. And as I, look, this is m- my whole premise here, John, is that the, the the debate over the monuments and this whole thing we're having, this is, as I said, a manufactured moral crisis as a way of, in Alinsky fashion, mobilizing the left, mobilizing the emotions of the left around the self-righteousness of combating racism, of combating genocide and slavery and all the stuff that they're now saying the statues represent. And then once they have a mobilized progressive base, they will use it for whatever purposes they see fit. And what, what the answer, what, what they're planning with it, that's, We'll have to wait and see, but that's what I think is going on here. Because these statues didn't just come out of nowhere. They've been around for a very long time. Yes. All right, John Shields, thank you very much for the call. Daniel in Iowa. What's going on, Daniel? Are you on the iHeart app? Uh, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, fantastic. I love when people listen on the iHeart app. Thank you, sir. I will tell you, before we get started, that I switched from a different station Back over to the Blaze because I listened to I listened to the Blaze with Doc Thompson in the morning. Switched to another station to listen to Glenn Beck's show and then Rush Limbaugh and then Sean Hannity and then close to talk about his pizza, his meatballs and meals and. Who are we, who are we, I can't I can't hear you, man. You keep you keep breaking. Daniel, call us back when you got a stronger connection, man. I can't. I couldn't. Did he cut out? <sighs> It's like, hello, I can't hear you. you got to call in on a better connection. Hello? Hello, are you there? On the phone line, hello? I don't know why I got all I got all Cockney accent all of a sudden, but that's... Call back when you've got a better connection. Evelyn in North Carolina, WPTI. Hey, Evelyn. Hi, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thanks uh, for the call. I want to talk about um, respect. And the reason for that is... I am a New Yorker, as you can hear. I was born in Staten Island, raised in Kingston, New York, the first capital of New York before Albany. I did feel a certain familiarity in your voice, Evelyn, so now I know. (laughs) And also, I love my history. You notice that the majority of these protesters are young people. And I, 
I want to go back to the home. I was raised in New York. I was raised to not be uh, critical because of skin color, ethnicity, religion, anything. I was told to respect people. And I, to this day, look at the heart and character of a person, not their color. I had black friends, Asian friends, white friends. And to this day, I have the same thing. And there was no racism brought up in my home. And I'm just wondering if these protesters are raised in a home of hatred and and everything else to to look down on people that are different from them. And, you know, I, I just I'm getting so tired of this. We can't destroy our history. It's part of the history book. You know, I watch Waters World. You ever see when he goes out into uh, the street? Yeah, the man on the street segments. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And he asked these college students. They know nothing of history. Well, college has been turned into largely a joke, Evelyn. Most people, uh, the, the best stuff that I learned in college, with a few exceptions, uh, I taught myself. I mean, they're, they're books that I got from a library or or pathways, intellectual pursuits that, that I embarked on myself, not because I was told to. Cause I was fed a steady diet of Marxist leftist claptrap, oh. and that's at a and that's at a supposedly you know, uh, elite New England college. I mean, I can't imagine what's going on at uh, some of the really far left places, although Amherst is pretty far left. I think this is what's causing all this uh, uprisings and everything. And I've I've been called uh, down here in North Carolina since 1986 when I first came here. Yankee, go home. You don't belong here. So, I mean, I've had a lot of things because of where I came from. And the thing is, uh, I don't know, now I'm being called a racist because I I love and adore and yeah, you see people you see people for who they are. I mean, Evelyn, this is I, I find it offensive. I find getting lectures from progressive activists on how because I'm an American, I love this country, I, I that means that I de facto support white supremacy. I, I find that offensive. It, it's not just that I think I it's think wrong. So. I also, it, it bothers me. I mean, it bothers me the same way that if someone told me that, you know, I, I mean, look, I've never been married, but if someone said, well, you know, you're a wife beater, that that's that's not an allegation that I'm okay, that I can't let that stand, right? I, I can't let no. that, that falsehood, that slur just be out there. And that's what's happening right now. The left is engaging in a campaign of of national slur against the country, against Republicans, against the GOP. These uh, This collective guilt of racism that they are trying to just bludgeon us all with all the time isn't reflective of you, of me, of the people listening to this show, and how we view our fellow Americans and our fellow human beings. I mean, I ride the subway here in New York City every day. You cannot find a more diverse place, I think, in the country than the New York City subway, and it's a beautiful thing. We all, for the most part, there's some crazy stuff that happens in the subway but as you know evelyn we all get along we're all in the same you know struggle trying to get to work trying to get home no, no one's looking at somebody oh well they're you know they're this color or they're this background so i don't know if i no. you know this is this is not this is not reflective of reality these people are i mean i think the primary characteristic of the progressive left today of the democrat party's animating ideology is delusion i think they are delusional 
there you have. I mean, that's just that's just where I come from on this. I think they're nuts. I really it's do. Crazy. Yeah. All right, Evelyn. Thank you. It's great to have a fellow New Yorker calling in from down south. I appreciate it. Shields high, Evelyn. Well, when she mentioned about how when she went down uh, down to the south as a New Yorker, people gave her a hard time. You know, my father went to uh, Episcopal High School in Virginia back in the '60s, I guess, and there were only a handful of New Yorkers in his class. And he told me stories. It's it's a different country now because back then, if you were going to if you were going to boarding school in Virginia and you were from New York City, people that that was a People noticed, and they weren't always uh, so welcoming about it. In fact, they had some they had some terms for New Yorkers that I will not repeat on air, but they were not complimentary. Uh, there was a lot of yeah. So uh, you know, we are we have all looked. That was fifty plus years ago now. Um, but you know, we're we've all we're all constantly evaluating and reevaluating you know how we act on an individual basis and also how we are as a society and you know i will tell you and th- this is i'm always reminded of, of this this fascinating interview by my, uh, with michael crichton a, a long time ago i think you can probably see it on youtube i think he i think he was uh, a genius i mean i think michael crichton was Yes, he was incredibly commercially successful with Jurassic Park and Congo and Sphere and Rising Sun. And in fact, he those of you who are fans of uh, Ty, what's that show on HBO that just uh, we- uh, the Western thing, the Western Westworld? Yeah, uh, yeah. He he was the original. He wrote the original screenplay for Westworld. It was made into a show a long time ago. But he always said something I thought was. He said he said a lot of things I thought was interesting. One of them was that he when he wrote um, State of Fear, which was about climate change uh and as you could Crichton was among the authors really was the author along with Tom Clancy which may explain how I ended up in the CIA as a young person uh but Crichton was one of the authors that made me like reading you know, at, at a young age you know I was like wow this is actually fun you know this is really interesting this is cool I like this I want to get back to my book you know forget about the Forget about watching uh, Charles in Charge or whatever well I had a, when I was a kid I had a huge crush on uh, one of the Charles in Charge Ladies, I forget what her name is now. But anyway, uh, she was a couple years older than me. I thought she was amazing. So where were we? Oh, yeah, Michael Crichton. So he's, he sat in this interview, and he said this, and I always remember this, that people tend to want to hear bad news. D- disaster, fear, these are much more interesting in general conversation than positive news. Uh, and he said that, in fact, people become hostile, even in social situations, if you won't go along with a, a fear mongering narrative uh, and, and that you just you are always swimming upstream when you're telling people that actually things are pretty good. You know, if 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 the gen- if the theme or the narrative at any given time is no things are terrible and you're like, actually, things are pretty good. People don't want to usually this is a huge generalization. They don't want to hear it. Um, and I always thought that was so interesting because I find that to be true, especially in, in the in the media. Um, and here's what I would say: R- race relations are so much are so much better in this country than they were. I mean, yeah, right now we're we're going through a period where there's some stuff going on, and but I mean, it's so much better than they were. And the country is uh, so much more prosperous than. And, and I know that there's places we need to fix, and there's problems, and we've got national security threats, and that's I talk to you about it all the time. And I really do earnestly believe that those are things we have to handle and deal with but the world the world and america are less violent places to live in uh, than they were 
a hundred, a thousand years ago. I mean, things are getting better all the time, actually. I, I know that people don't like to hear this, but it's true. Things are actually, I'm just giving you a little moment of happy before I go and tell you that the ACLU is a really shockingly, um, well, I guess it's not shocking at all, actually. It's, it's a far-left organization, but wow, they don't even hide it anymore. They're ready to They're ready to abandon free speech as a principle, and they're also ready to jump on the white supremacy is America chorus, which is just mind-boggling, ACLU. I'll, I'll talk to you about that since I told you that things are actually good in general in the world. Now I'm going to tell you how bad things are. See? See how that happens? Arizona, K-O-Y. What's up, Bradley? Hey, Buck. Uh, I wanted to call in and comment on all this, all the protesting and things that have been going on post-Charlottesville, and you have uh, all the sort of left-wing fringe kook groups that are the, the anti, you know, anti this, anti that, uh, the group of inclusivity and, and everybody's, you know, living on a rainbow and, and eating cotton candy. But what struck me or, or what I just came up with, and I'm sure somebody else has probably said this, is they're practicing exactly what they're preaching on a different level. And it's this, um, this ideological bigotry that they are foisting on all of us as though if you're not with whatever uh, cause that, that, you know, the cause of the weak, that you're somehow a terrible person in, in that, you know, you don't belong here, you don't belong in, in this city, county, state, etc. So it's interesting that they're so anti-bigotry, but I feel like they're practicing it themselves, but it's, it's a different form. It has nothing to do with skin color or, or race or religion. It's your ideology and how terrible I may be because I don't go along with uh, with their level of ideology. It's not an exaggeration, Bradley, to say that there are left-wing activists out there and left-wing media outlets, too, who really engage in dehumanizing uh, Republicans. Uh, once you start to say that people are racist, bigoted, homophobic, xenophobic, you know, once you have destroyed all of their moral integrity, it's a lot easier to mistreat them. It's a lot easier to fire them. It's a lot easier to ruin their lives, ruin their reputations. And as we're seeing, even easier to just go up and punch them or attack them or throw rocks at them. Or, you know, the, the left is is doing this, actively doing this across the country in a in a, uh, a way that I think everyone's starting to see and whether the media wants to cover it or not, th- this is the reality that we face. But they're, you know, they're bigots just like uh, the white nationalist neo-Nazi kooks. They just, they hate you for a different reason. And, and that in no yeah, I mean, hate is bad. Violence is bad. And these are these are very basic concepts, but they're being blurred these days. And I think they're being blurred a lot more on the left than they are on the right. But of course, that's at the center of this debate right now. Bradley, thanks for calling in, man. Shields, I appreciate it. Uh, OK, so I mentioned this ACLU. So, look, the American Civil Liberties Union is a left wing outfit. We know that. OK. From their from their official Twitter account, they put out a photo, and you've got to see this. We should we'll put it up on can we put it up on bucksexton.com? We'll, we'll put it up so everyone can see it if they don't have Twitter. But it's a little a, a, a like a, a cute little toddler who has you know blonde hair and but who cares? 
Tyler with an American flag and the ACLU national account puts out, this is the future that ACLU members want. And it's just like, it's basically a happy little baby holding the American flag. And then in this Twitter chain, you have somebody who is an official account. Um, I, I think, I don't know what her particular role is. I can't click on it because then I will lose this thread, but I'll come back to it. Maybe she says a white kid with a flag question mark. And then the ACLU tweets out, when your Twitter followers keep you in check and remind you that white supremacy is everywhere. I'm sorry. The ACLU shares a photo of a, of a cute little white kid with a, with a flag and says, this is a future that we want. And that's what that's. And then agrees with commenters. I don't know who these commenters are or what they're thinking. But that's that's white supremacy. If that is now the standard that a white that a photo of a white toddler is de facto white being elevated as like, hey, isn't this great? Or like, isn't this cute or whatever is white supremacy? Everything is white supremacy. We've also started to get closer and closer, I think, to a very uncomfortable recognition, which is that there are some people out there for whom the allegation of cultural white supremacy is, I think, often an indicator of an underlying hostility that they hold that they don't really want to talk about. So they'll say, oh, it's all, look at all this white supremacy. So it's not white supremacy, but you're the ones who have a problem with a, a white toddler holding an American flag. What's that all about? Is bigotry able to go in all kinds of directions? Yeah, just, just putting this out there because uh, a toddler with an American flag shouldn't be a point of political debate. But somehow it became one. And the ACLU backed it up as they're completely swamped with progressive nonsense. And they have been for a long time. But now they're not even willing to defend free speech as free speech really anymore. They're saying, well, maybe we should balance it out depending on the group and whether the person's a victim or not. I mean, it's it's crazy. But you got to see. We'll put it up on BuckSaxon.com. You've got to see this tweet. It's, it is jaw-dropping. He's going to stick to building that wall, Ainsley, and he wants the money to pay for it. The president ran on building the wall, won on building the wall, and has remained steadfastly committed to doing it. And anybody who is surprised by that has not been paying attention for over two years. This country has spent billions of dollars over the years helping other nations protect their own borders. It's high time we do it here. So he's telling Congress... He's building the wall. He expects the funding. And it's up to them. It's up to them right. to work collaboratively. We hope they do. The president's committed to making sure this gets done. Uh, we know that the wall and other security measures at the border work. We've Good. seen that take place the last decade. And we're committed to making sure the American people are protected. And we're going to continue to push forward and make sure that the wall gets built. Why is he, Matthew, why is he threatening a shutdown over paying for it? I mean, again, he said... Over and over again, you talked about the campaign over and over again. He said Mexico's going to pay for the wall. Now, once again, the president's committed to making sure this happens, and we're going to push forward. Noah, uh, he's not saying that Mexico is going to pay for it. He hasn't now. said they're not either. <laughs> well, we'll see, everyone. We'll see. Why did I, I feel like most or a lot of shows today probably would have let off a lot of uh, talk radio shows or political shows on the news and whatever would have let off with oh either tax reform or the wall fight and here's why i didn't do it one we're gonna we're obviously gonna get deeper into that because congress isn't even back yet so it's kind of like i'm trying to give you a review of a play and it's not even opening night right i mean we, we don't really know 
anything different from what we've known along here. But what we know, if I may say so, is that the Republicans are a bunch of cowards. Or at least there are enough cowardly Republicans that they're not going to do what they forget about what the Trump agenda is, what they've said that they would do all along, you know, what they've said that they were going to be engaged in all along. Um, That hasn't happened. And you look at what the Congress has been up to in the last few months and the fiasco of uh, repeal and replace. And you have to wonder, why are we to think that it will be different now? Let me give you my prediction. And I gave you this prediction. This is like when I when I betting against the home team that I love big, right? Because I really would like to see uh, tax reform. And I really would like to see funding for a wall and the wall to really uh, get started. It's going to take a while, but get it going. Um, for the security reasons of the wall, and also there's, there's a real symbolism of the wall. And and the wall will stay. It will be there. It will be a reminder of, uh, of sovereignty, um, a reminder of this country's obligations to its citizens first. But here's what I think. This is why I didn't, I didn't lead off with it, because we're going to follow it as it happens, of course. We come back with the Republicans in Congress and Mitch McConnell's going to be, you know, Mitch McConnell's going to talk. Uh, we'll see what happens. I think that they will cave on the debt ceiling. I think Paul Ryan and others have already made that pretty apparent. They're going to raise the debt ceiling. They will not shut down the government and there will not be funding for a wall. That's my prediction to you. And after all that, and, and they're going to tell you, I should note, that it's so that they can get uh, so that they can get tax reform done, that that's why they've sold out on the wall and the, and the, the debt ceiling. They'll, they'll extend the debt ceiling. So we just keep on borrowing more money further into debt, further in the, into debt every year, further into debt, because, you know, borrowing endlessly and borrowing beyond your and paying or spending beyond your means. You know, what could go wrong? Right. More, more, 10, 20 trillion. Let's make it 25 trillion. Let's make it 30 trillion. Let's see what happens. Nobody else could ever be the world's reserve currency, right? We're going to be America number one forever, right? No matter what we spend, no matter how irresponsible we are with our money, no matter what obligations that are unpayable we set up for our future. It doesn't matter. We're, we're America number one. We're always going to be number one. doesn't matter what we do. That seems to be the mentality. Spend, spend, spend. Take the national credit card and run up the limit. Okay. They're going to tell us that it's not worth fighting on this issue because tax reform is going to jumpstart the economy. Tax reform, And one thing Republicans are good at because the donor class loves it is finding ways to give tax cuts to certain people and make it seem like it's going to be great for all of us. So I think maybe they'll get something on they'll do something on corporate taxes because Democrats like big government. I mean, sorry. Well, yeah, they do. But big corporations, too. You know, GE and Disney and all these places, they love giving lots of money. Goldman Sachs, lots of money to Democrats. So corporate tax reform, I think that'll get done. But the major agenda items for Trump, no, that's not going to happen. The the wall, no. Congress will not do it. I think Trump will say, come on, guys, now's the time. You know what they're going to tell us? I really really feel like I should pull this segment and we should just hold it and see where we are in about a month. Because what they're going to say is, this is not the time to fight. They're going to put Paul Ryan out there. He's going to be like, guys, you know, I really, you know, we've looked at the budget and this is a good deal. And we're going to really, the next time I'm going to go to the mat, I'm going to flex these Ryan muscles and it's going to be, you know, all it, baby. I, that's, that's what they're going to say. And Paul Ryan's going to say it just like that. Uh, that's what's going to happen. 
This is my prediction. So uh, we'll talk more about it as it gets closer, but I'm just telling you, they're not they're not going to shut down the government. If they do, they'll do it after a day or two. They'll say, oh, guys, they're so scared. I can't do this. And they'll, they'll fund the government again and everything else. The shutdown, the shutdown. Is, it's not like the zombie apocalypse that the government shuts down for a day or two, but that's what they'll tell us. So here, here's my prediction. Won't be funding for a wall. Won't be a shutdown. Maybe it'll be some minor corporate tax reform and Republicans will declare victory and go back to their donors and say, see, and that'll be it. All right, everybody, as promised, we are back here in the Freedom Hut and we have Ben Shapiro on the line, editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist and host of the Ben Shapiro Show. Ben, great to have you back. Sure. Tell me about political violence is not okay. You wrote this for National Review. I agree with you, but I want to know why. Well, I mean, it's not okay because in a civilized society, the basic concept of having a civilized society in the first place is that the state is supposed to have a monopoly on legitimate violence other than self-defense. And this is sort of the Max Faber uh, construction of what the state is supposed to be. And the fact that the left is now saying it's okay for people like the thugs at Antifa to attack people who are neo-Nazis and white supremacists but who are not acting violently or threatening imminent violence that's a, a it's a breaking of the social contract that can't really be put together once you've broken it. The moment that I saw that the press and, and a lot of, you know, there, there's the mainstream press and there's also the more just left wing blogosphere folks and the, and, the, and the social media warriors and everything. When they started to reduce it down to, well, I mean, Nazi punching is OK. I was worried because it's not just that Nazi punching is actually not okay, uh, but Nazi punching means that they can call anybody who's a conservative or that they don't like a Nazi and therefore punching them is okay if Nazi punching is okay, meaning they expand they expand who is able to be hit very quickly. Um, right, exactly. And this has been the problem for the left consistently is this, this ridiculous attempt by the left to conflate neo-Nazis with anybody who is remotely right-wing. I mean, Antifa has gone after white supremacists, but they've also gone after uh, a parade in Portland. There was a Rose Parade in Portland that was featuring just some normal Republican Party folks who were marching wearing Trump hats. And they had to shut down the parade because Antifa was getting violent. So it's very easy to say things like it's OK to punch a Nazi. It's actually harder to say even Nazis have a right to free speech. The left says it's OK to punch a Nazi. And then they broaden it out to include everyone's a Nazi. Right, which is why I keep telling everybody, I mean, the Supreme Court dealt with this a long time ago in Skokie, Illinois, and I think if you asked a lot of people right now in the media, if there's a neo-Nazi march, are people morally justified in, in, in actually physically attacking those people who are just marching with their gross you know, insignias and swastikas and all deplorable, all disgusting and disgraceful, but walking with that, does that mean that they should be able to be set upon by an angry mob and physically attacked, I think a lot of people in media say the answer is yes right now. I think that's right. And, and you're seeing that number expand as they find it convenient to side with some of the worst people in the world in order to polarize the electorate. The fact is that 95% of Americans agree on the following propositions. Neo-Nazis bad, communists bad, anarchists bad, violence against people for their political beliefs bad. And yet somehow the left has twisted this into a 50-50 proposition by suggesting it's okay to punch Nazis and that everybody's a Nazi. And you are going to Berkeley, by the way. Your name often comes up in these discussions about uh, free speech. I also find it fascinating when there's this construction. I think I even saw this in the New York Times that this is some 
this is some tactic, like you showing up and, and others, right? I mean, I'm trying to, Charles Murray, uh, Heather McDonald, we've had all these people on the show, that you showing up to share your opinions is a form of incitement. But that said, maybe, you know, people shouldn't show up and throw rocks and, and try to destroy property and punch people. That's the way the New York Times is writing about things now. So e- even the mainstream journals of leftist opinion are pretty open about how speech is violence, including you going to, what, Berkeley? Is that next? Yeah, that's next. That's September 14th. And we'll see if Antifa shows up. I I would prefer, obviously, they not. And I've actually told people who are, you know, would be alt-right, you know, defenders of free speech. I told them, don't show up with weapons. Don't show up ready to do battle. This is why Berkeley is forcing us to pay a $15,000 security fee. Let them do the work they're supposed to do. Right. Let's see if they're actually going to fulfill the free speech promise that they've made. And that means I don't want people showing up, you know, ready to fight on my behalf. That's what the police are there for. I'm a citizen. That's my right. Do you have to? Do you have personal security that has to travel with you? How does this yeah, work? Do. Yeah, yeah, I, I do have personal security, uh, so I'll have several security guards that are just for me. And then we also have, yeah, the Young Americans Foundation, which is sponsoring the event. They had to shell out fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars in additional security fees to UC Berkeley. Presumably, Berkeley will have uh, an, its own security force, and the UC Berkeley PD will show up. All right. Well, is that going to be live stream? By the way, if folks want to watch it. Uh, we hope so. Yeah. Hope <laughs> so. Assuming it happens, and they don't try to burn down the building or something. Yeah, it should be live streamed. Okay, good. We're speaking to Ben Shapiro, who's editor editor in chief of uh, DailyWire dot com. Uh, tell me about your uh, about the piece up on Daily Wire. Why the Robert Lee story may be the nail in ESPN's coffin. My favorite news story from this week, maybe even this month. But why is it the nail in ESPN's coffin? I mean, the problem for ESPN has been that for a long time, people like me, people who are devotees of ESPN, I mean, I used to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to watch SportsCenter. People like me are looking at ESPN now and saying, I can't even watch your channel because all I get is Caitlyn Jenner is a hero and Colin Kaepernick ought to be granted the Medal of Honor. And all I want to do is just watch the damn sports highlights. And now they have this situation where a random college football announcer named Robert Lee was supposed to be a sideline announcer, I guess, at this, at this game at University of Virginia. And they were afraid that people would make the connection between an Asian guy named Robert Lee, who announces college football, and Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. Right. And so they pulled Robert Lee off of that event, suggesting that this was going to somehow appease people, like this was going to tamp down tensions. It, it just demonstrates the, the extent to which ESPN has defeated its own purpose in the world. They're a sports network. They are not a political network, and yet they've engaged in politics at every turn. People are cutting the cord because of it. I mean, even their own even even their own ombudsman was saying earlier this year that that people inside the ESPN headquarters are saying that there's too too much political bias at ESPN. When that's the case, I can't be surprised that people are cutting the cord. Also, uh, transgender guidance on uh, for the military came out today, Ben. I know that you've been very involved in the debates and discussions over what is now called the transgender rights movement. Uh, what's your take on Trump? On first of all, the rightness or wrongness of the guidance, and then why now? Okay, so I think that the as far as the rightness or wrongness of the guidance, um, my understanding is that a lot of people in the military would not be happy with people who have a mental illness being recruited into the military. Uh, This, of course, is not to question the patriotism of anybody who's transgender who wants to join or who's currently serving, but there are certain costs that are associated, not just monetary costs, but also costs in terms of unit cohesion. It creates questions like, okay, let's say that you're a genetic man and you think that you're a woman, you're a transgender woman. Do you have to fulfill female standards of training or male standards of training? How exactly does all of this work? It's very complex. It's very complicated. And so this is not a place for social engineering the military. This should be a place for uh, creating the best fighting force possible. So on that score, I don't think that Trump is wrong at all on the transgender thing. I also don't think that 
anyone has the right to serve in the military. Four F all the time from the military, including for mental health reasons. So that's not a, a, a giant shocker. You know, I, I'm not particularly happy with how Trump did this. I mean, the original tweeting it out, I thought, was, was not the way to do it. What he should have done is allowed General Mattis uh, to complete the Defense Department study, explain what their plan was going to be for implementation, and do this in a very calm, rational fashion. I think doing it sort of ass backwards by uh, announcing that you want to do it and then trying to come up with the rationale afterward, um, I think that that's kind of foolish. And I'm still waiting to see more specific guidance on all of this, because even the announcement that they have some more specific plans I don't think we've seen any of the specifics, but, you know, I think Mattis knows how the military works better than I do. And so I'm fully willing to, to go along with whatever he likes here. I'm curious, as a, as a fellow host here, Ben, I have tried so many times. I've had the team here reach out to every medical expert that we can track down who has some background or expertise in 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 uh, gender reassignment surgery. I can't get anyone to come on and talk about this. And I think it's fascinating because any other medical issue that I can fathom right now, uh, any disease, any, you know, if, if I wanted to get an expert on to talk about alcoholism or PTSD or you name it, no problem at all. Getting someone who has an MD to come on to talk about transgender rights is very, very difficult, which I think says a lot. It does say a lot, and, and there's a reason for it. It's because if you actually know a shred about medicine, you understand that transgenderism is a mental disorder. It is not an actual statement of your of your sex or gender. Uh, that that you, you this idea that you can that, that sex is, that gender is malleable and completely malleable that you can be a biological man in every possible way but if you declare yourself a woman now we're going to consider you a woman it's completely ascientific and so medical professionals who come on know that they're either going to get hammered or that they're going to be forced to say something that it, that isn't particularly true or they're going to have to take the biological position which is unpopular on the left. And, you know, one of your uh, colleagues at uh, National Review, I know the folks over there well, told me some years ago that when, when he wrote about transgender issues, it was the, the and this is someone, you know, the National Review guys very well, you write for National Review, right? They're writing about uh, abortion, they're writing about racism, they're, I mean, name a hot button topic. But he said that when he wrote about, this was maybe four years ago, five years ago, when he wrote about transgender issues was the most death threats and hate mail he ever got for a piece. And I think it's fascinating because my assumption, and I remember saying this to him, was you're getting those from people who aren't transgender. That's what's so amazing. Right. These are people that care so much about the issue that have no personal connection to the issue who are so dedicated to virtue signaling that they will threaten death against somebody over the issue. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of people on the left are looking for a new civil rights movement, and we've run out of all the good ones. You know, we've run out of, of women should be able to work. We've run out of black people are the same as white people. We've run out of all of those things. And so now we've come up to transgenderism, and people still want to feel invested in I'm changing the world, I'm doing good. And so this is a way for them to do it, even if it involves death threats sometimes. Ben, uh, one last one for you real quick. Christopher Columbus statue in Columbus Circle in New York City, right in front of CNN, by the way. Is it coming down? de Blasio says it might. Uh, just asinine. I can't imagine they're actually going to take it down. But if de Blasio does it, it just demonstrates what a fool he is. <laughs> Amen. Here, here. Ben Shapiro, everybody, editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. Check out the site. We're also our friend Emily Zanotti is a recent uh, hire. Great pick there. We love Emily. Syndicated columnist, host of the Ben Shapiro Show and writes for National Review. Ben, thank you so much. All right, team, we are going to roll into a break. We'll be back with uh, much more, including a discussion of the Barcelona terror cell. I've got an update on that. Really interesting stuff that the media is not really paying much attention to, and I'll tell you why about those Barcelona terror attacks. Also, reporting about possible 
dirty tricks, and uh, it's even hard to describe, uh, really a, a possible sonic assault on U.S. diplomats in Cuba. Give you some of the background on that and also talk to you about some of my experiences today on the streets of New York City. The Barcelona Jihadist Cell. We now have important information about the dozen individuals who were engaged in a massive terror conspiracy in Spain that killed 13 people. And had they been able to pull off their initial plan, they likely would have been able to kill hundreds. Most of the media has moved on from this, and I will offer to you that it's because this is a classic case of jihadist terrorism, and there's no place for them, there's no place for the media to score political points on this. In fact, there are two areas, assimilation and immigration, where the media is not going to want to touch this at all now that the facts have come in about the Barcelona terror cell. And this reminds me, as I read through it, of many of the case studies and different cases that I worked on, either at the NYPD or before that at the CIA, looking at the cell structure here and how individual tradecraft was such an important part of everything that went on here. And it's the reason, uh, along with some missed opportunities by law enforcement, that this cell was not disrupted. The big missing piece on this has to do with the imam. We finally now know who the key to radicalization was here. An imam named Abdel Baki Essati. He is Moroccan, and he was somebody that law enforcement was aware of, but aware of him in a criminal context. He had served four years in prison for drug trafficking and was able to get out of prison and evade. Yes, here's where the immigration part of this comes in. He was able to get out of, with the judiciary in Spain allowing it, a deportation order. So here you have a criminal jihadist Moroccan immigrant who breaks the law, serves four years in prison, and is supposed to be deported. And a Spanish judge, despite the law saying that he should be deported, says, no, no, let's let's give him another shot. Let's keep him in Spain. Well, because of that judge and because of that decision, 13 people are dead, many, many dozens more grievously wounded, many lives have been shattered, and the peace, the tranquility, the sense of security of Spain has been greatly uh, greatly diminished. So Abdel Baki Asati is reported as being somebody, this is the imam that radicalized all the rest of the cell whom are, have either been killed by police or in prison. Some of the people arrested have been released, I should note, uh, but it is about, about a dozen people in this cell Abdelbaki Asati was polite. He was friendly. He was very courteous to people, and he was careful. What it seems like happened here is Asati, during his stay in prison, radicalized even more and had contact with someone who was involved with the 2004 Madrid train bombing, which killed over 190 people and changed the political trajectory of Spain in one day. It's uh, reported now that Abdel Baki uh, Asati was in contact with someone named Rashid Aglif, 
known as El Conejo, the rabbit, who was serving 18 years in prison because of his involvement in the Madrid bombings. So that is where some of and he was so he was Al Qaeda affiliated. And that is where some of the Al Qaeda tactics come into play. They moved to a safe house. This this cell, the Barcelona cell, they were operating out of a safe house. I'd be willing to bet there was no Internet, no cable, no no connectivity to this house of any kind. It was an abandoned house that they were operating. They were squatters. So there would be no one paying attention to their comings and goings. And there was no digital footprint left behind for the authorities to exploit. Uh, It is also believed that Abdelbaki Asati traveled to Belgium and was likely in contact with some of the ISIS jihadists and the major terror cells that were operating there. Um, And so this is a guy who was running in these circles but managing to stay off the radar, which makes me think that, yes, he was careful. Uh, So he understood how the authorities would monitor this kind of activity. He understood um, that he needed to be careful with the individuals that he picked out. He went after specifically young Muslim brothers because you can use the self-reinforcing bonds of brotherhood to avoid someone in the cell splitting off, right? You're much less likely to get cold feet and and get somebody uh, and get the police involved if it means your brother might go to prison, right? You're not going to sell your brother out because during this whole radicalization process, like so many forms of Uh, brainwashing and indoctrination, there will, of course, be doubts along the way. There will be someone who decides that this is not really the path they want to go down. But if they don't reach out to the police and if they are able to suppress those doubts, and specifically they suppress them in the case of the Barcelona cell, because these were pairs of brothers largely involved in this attack, well, this is terror recruitment tradecraft. Tradecraft being the, the skills, you know, in the, in the uh, world of national security and intelligence, tradecraft is, is your skill set. So these, these jihadists were not trained, um, and that's why the bomb went off in this, in this house in uh, Alcanar, because they didn't have training from the Islamic State. They didn't have hands-on explosives so far from what we know, Uh, hands-on explosives training, which is why they were not able to conduct a mass casualty attack in Spain using explosives. The plan was to build a giant truck bomb, park it in a crowded area, probably a Spanish monument, and kill as many people as possible with that bomb blast, which, based on the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, which would give you a sense of what this could be, or the bombing of the Uh, bombing uh, by Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, a a, a truck bomb packed with explosives can kill hundreds of people and destroy an entire structure. And it was likely that that was the original plan. But they didn't have the explosives training and skill set to pull that off. So they went to the vehicular attacks. Now, it should also be noted that had they had this cell of a dozen individuals, and this is terrifying to me, had this cell of a dozen people said, you know what? We are committed jihadists. Forget about a bomb. That's too risky. If they had all just rented large, heavy vehicles and picked different parts of Spain that were crowded and full of people and done what uh, and and done various iterations of what they did in Barcelona, they would have killed hundreds of people. 
So because the jihadists have in their mindset that they they have a particular uh, proclivity that they really like to go out literally with a boom, they like a big explosion, uh, that may have been, in this case, the reason that there weren't more casualties. But on the immigration side of this issue, you have, which is, again, why I think the mainstream media has almost entirely abandoned uh, any follow-up to what happened in Spain, because this is straight out of the uh, expectations that we all have of a jihadist terror attack. These were uh, almost all immigrants to the country. I think one or two of them may have been born in Spain, but of immigrant parents. So they were Moroccan Muslims living in Spain. An imam, a religious figure, radicalized them, and then they went out to kill as many people as possible. I had spoken to you earlier about how Al-Andalus, which is what they call jihadists, call Spain, is a place that looms large in the mindset of those who have embraced radical Islam because it is lost territory. If you look at the Muslim world, there are very few places that were entirely in the grip of the Ummah, which is their term for the Islamic community, and then were lost from what is called the Dar al-Islam, or the land of Islam, to the Dar al-Harb, which is the land of war. Spain, because it is now in infidel hands, is the land of war. It is Dar al-Harb, and that means that it is a place that they would like to wage war because it is lost territory. There is an irredentism, a sense of lost territory that must be regained in any attack against Spain. And that was a, that's a part of the mindset here. Uh, but on the immigration front, you also had the imam who should have been expelled from the country and was not because of some Spanish judge. He was an immigrant. He had broken the law and they didn't kick him out and send him back to his home country. The other point here has to do with assimilation. These young Muslim men who engaged in this terror cell of a dozen people were, by all accounts, westernized, integrated, living uh, reasonably happy, productive lives in Spain, which I haven't been there, but from everything that I know and have heard and am told is a great place. Uh, They were living in a free, prosperous Western society, and they were integrated, and they did have opportunities. And you'll notice that despite the fact that Spain has about a 50% youth unemployment rate, you don't have just normal Spaniards Uh, blowing up things. You have radicalized Islamic Spaniards who in 2004 and now, and and of course you could say, well, they're they're Moroccans living in Spain, uh, but who who decided to wage this jihad. So the assimilation point here uh, isn't valid. And that's usually a way that the mainstream press tries to blame the victim and blame the European country, the society that was just attacked by these jihadists. In this case, these young men were playing sports, playing PlayStation, hanging out with girls, eating great food, doing their thing in Spain, but they embraced this Islamic totalitarian ideology of jihad. And that was all that was needed for them to want to engage in mass murder, to kill innocent men, women, and children. They ran over a seven-year-old. Murder a seven-year-old. They did all of this willfully, intentionally, and they wanted to kill more. Uh, this is the most toxic belief system on the planet. I know we'd like to get lectures in this country from the media, or we are forced to get lectures in this country from the media. We don't like it. 
uh, about how we have deteriorating race relations and Donald Trump this and Donald Trump that and all this. The most dangerous, destructive ideology on the planet right now is radical Islam. It's jihadism. It opposes the biggest threat to the West without question. And if we can't at least accept that, we're not even fighting the right fight. We don't even know what's coming our way. All right, I'm going to talk to you about what's going on in Cuba uh, and what they're doing, it seems, reportedly to some U.S. officials. Uh, It is nasty stuff. I'll be right back with that. Stay with me. Is the Cuban government involved in dirty tricks against our diplomats? Buck Sexton back with you now, team. Continuing on with a buck brief here. Now looking at what's going on with some of our uh, diplomatic personnel and the nefarious Cuban government. We seem to have lost some sense, I think, in this country of just uh, how insidious the regime in Cuba, Raul Castro and all of his enablers and supporters and strongmen and torturers and terrorists. Uh, we seem to have forgotten that that is the case down there. I think in large part because the Obama administration and a number of celebrities who visited Cuba made it seem like no big deal and that everything down there is just fine. And they seem willing to suspend their faculties of reason and judgment in order to explain away the inexplicable when it comes to the totalitarian prison island that is Cuba. Here's the story that I'm referencing, though. According to medical records reviewed by CBS News, a U.S. doctor who evaluated American and Canadian diplomats working in Havana diagnosed them with conditions as serious as mild traumatic brain injury and with likely damage to the central nervous system. The diplomats complained about symptoms ranging from hearing loss and nausea to headaches and balance disorders after the State Department said incidents began affecting them beginning in late 2016. A source familiar with these incidents says officials are investigating whether the diplomats were targets of a type of sonic attack directed at their homes, which were provided by the Cuban government. The source says reports of more attacks affecting U.S. embassy workers on the island continue. End quote. That's from CBS News. This also was brought up today in the press conference with Sarah Sanders, and she said that she had no comment and referred people to the State Department and that they were looking at this issue, and that's all that they had. But let me tell you, if the Cuban government was, in fact, targeting out of spite, mind you, just just out of spite, our diplomatic personnel in Cuba, it would not surprise me in the least. Cuba is a very aggressive state in a whole number of areas. People think of Cuba now and they are told things like, oh, there are so many doctors and they give health care to other countries. You know, they send doctors to Venezuela. They send doctors to these other places. Well, they also have a long history of sending military supplies and equipment and military advisors and intelligence advisors to countries all over the world, stretching all the way back to the 1960s. In fact, the Dirección General de Inteligencia, the DI, I don't speak Spanish, so pardon the pronunciation there, but the uh, Directorate of Intelligence in Cuba is a very aggressive service that had its origins in the uh, KGB's assistance. The KGB, under the Soviet era, that incredibly aggressive uh, communist intelligence service that was squaring off against the United States and its allies 
all over the world. The KGB was intimately involved in the early days of Cuban intelligence. And so Cuban intelligence was trained by and mentored by the KGB. Now, the KGB has since morphed into the FSB with the fall of the Soviet Union. And there are other Russian intelligence organizations now. And it's not quite the same, although it is still very aggressive and uses some of the same dirty tricks and procedures as in the past. But the Cuban DI is hasn't gone through really any change. I mean, this is the same DI that it has been for a long time. And Cuba has a longstanding history of very aggressive espionage efforts, uh, very aggressive intelligence collection and subversion all over the Western Hemisphere. I mean, the Cuban government has been pushing its agents and its military personnel uh, into conflicts in Central America, has been pushing them to Venezuela. And the ideology of the Cuban state, and this is what I think is lost with the Obama administration, the ideology of the Cuban state hasn't changed really at all. Uh, It still remains stuck in a Cold War mentality. And the people who are in charge in Cuba, so the top military uh, decision makers, intelligence decision makers, Raul Castro, all of his uh, higher ups, they hate America and they will take and they hate Canada. I mean, they, they hate people who don't fall into the category of, you know, anti-Yankee, anti-imperialist. I mean, they still live. They are in a time warp. They still think that they are fighting the old Cold War battle against America. And look on the, if we're going to keep it real here, 100%, I mean, we do want a different regime in Cuba, obviously. And I think the Obama administration giving concessions to Cuba without any change in the Cuban government is a very uh, poor policy decision. Uh, because the Cubans haven't budged an inch on any key issues of uh, liberalization of politics and human rights. And just it's still a police state, a straight up police state, 90 miles from U.S. soil. And it operates as a constant pain in the butt for us and for all of our allies in the region. You know, I mean, you go back and you read about Cuba's history of, of aiding Marxist insurgencies all over the world, you'd think maybe they could spend a little bit more time focused on economic development, feeding their people and taking care of what's at home. But the ideology has to always at the top has to be focused on revolution and fighting and this paranoid belief that they have to always be prepared for the next fight, because if they were to just try and normalize relations with the civilized world, Uh, they would find themselves in, well, maybe it's not paranoid because I guess it's true. They'd find themselves out of power. I guess that would probably happen. Uh, But that means that things never get any better there. Uh, But anyway, Cuba may have been going after our diplomats based on this reporting with some really nasty technology. And based on the way that the Cuban security apparatus works, would not surprise me at all. All right, I'll be back with more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton back with you now. Team, I I told you about my uh, little bit of field reporting today to go watch a protest. And it's just it's a gorgeous day here in New York City. Uh, It was one of those days where it's look, it's glorious to be alive. I mean, the weather is just perfect and the city is humming. And 
Uh, this part of the year is really my favorite. Uh, very end of August, early September into about mid-October. If you're ever looking for time to visit New York City, I personally think September is the best month to be in New York. So I, I was just walking. I know it's August still, but it's getting close. But I was walking on the street, and I'm a lifelong New Yorker. And I also, as you know, spent some uh, time working at the NYPD. And so I, I just am, I'm familiar with some of what goes on on the streets. And I was on my way to this protest, and I didn't know how long it was going to go. So I, I was trying to get there quickly. But I saw something on the street, and I'm, I'm a little frustrated. I'm not sure that I would have done things differently, but I, I just feel, I feel a sense of frustration. So I'm walking on the street, and I saw some uh, youths uh, who were uh, probably all about early 20s, 21 to 23, I'd, I'd guess, and all of them about uh, my size, and they had gotten into a semicircle, and they were, well, in the midst of handing over CDs for cash on the street. Now, and I could also see that the individual that they were engaged in the transaction with was clearly a tourist, uh, a father with his son. The son might have been about 10 years old. European tourists. The guy had a, I don't know what you call it, a, a, like a man bag, basically, a, you know, a, a, a pouch along his side. He was obviously a tourist. And I've, I've been in the city my whole life, right? So I know tourists and I also know what this could have been. Now, to be fair, well, to be fair, maybe it was a perfectly innocuous situation. But let me just tell you that something that I'm familiar with and the cops actually that I worked with would talk about it uh, is a scam where uh, individuals on the street will walk up and they do this to tourists particularly because tourists don't know what's going on. They're in the city the same way that I remember seeing the headmaster of my school when we had a trip to Italy. I know trip to Italy when you're in school, but we did. And you had uh, gypsies going into his pockets and one of them had handed him some papers and, and then a gypsy was trying to go through his pockets and take his uh, or Roma, as they prefer to be called, trying to take his wallet. So tourists could take an advantage all, all over the world. Uh, but in this case, it was tourists and three three youths um, and who were pretty, pretty big guys. Uh, they were there were three of them and they were handing over the CD. And I looked at the guy and he was the, the tourist was smiling. And look, this all happened very quickly. The tourist was smiling, and he had a son there with him. It was a busy street. It's broad daylight. I mean, nothing bad was going to happen. But the scam, the way it works, if this was the scam, and maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe these are just guys who are trying to get there. And, and that's why, ultimately, uh, I didn't weigh in. Maybe they were just guys who were trying to get their name out there, and they're selling their own CD on the street. I went to school, and my college roommates uh, were in a band, they always had a little fold-out table somewhere selling CDs. Totally possible. So, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything about this, but I stopped, and that's why I'm sitting here. This is almost like a, I'm confessing even though I'm not sure there's anything to confess. It's just been bothering. It's just been bothering me all day because I, I, what the scam is, if it was a scam, is that people walk up to a tourist and they say, what's your name? And the tourist says, you know, Sven, you know, or whatever. 
And I think this guy today, the tourist, probably would have said something like Sven. And then they write the guy's name or whoever's name on the CD. And then they say, you know, okay, well, that'll be 15 bucks. You know, here's your personalized CD. Now, that seems not like a huge deal. I mean, it is a scam, right? It, it is really extortion uh, under the auspices of, you know, selling your wares on the street. Because once the name is written, they'll say, well, you can't, you can't take that. I can't take this back. This is for you now. It's been personalized. You see, that's the trick. And, and it, it preys upon people's good nature. Um, and that's, and especially tourists, good nature. I don't know if that's what happened. I have a feeling it is what was happening, though. I should also note that in uh, my neighborhood years ago, or, well, it was actually really a neighborhood or two over, but close by, there was somebody who was doing this scam on the street, and an undercover police officer uh, called him out, and the guy actually pulled a Tech 9 and fired at the officer, and the officer who was undercover uh, had shot and killed this guy. Uh, that I remember that very, I think that was in 2010. Uh, so it was years ago, but the guy was doing exactly this. He was selling CDs. They're counterfeit CDs. I don't even know if anything's on them, but the scam is you write the tourist name on it, then you, then you say 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks for a, a CD that I don't even know if it has any value, but it's not something that somebody necessarily wanted to engage in a transaction. I'm just telling you the story because you know, I went through in a, in a span of about 15 seconds all of the different because I stopped. I was walking past this and I stopped because I, I love this town. Uh, I, I really do love New York City for all of its flaws and, and problems and everything else and the smells and the expense. And, and I hate seeing people who are visiting get mistreated. I really, it really is a, a personal point of pride for me that that shouldn't be happening in my hometown. And also because of my time at the NYPD, I, I know about some of these different scams that people run. And this is a, a well-known one. And, and there were there were efforts by the cops to crack down on it in the past. But then I, I, I had to go through all the iterations. What if these guys, what if these gentlemen were not involved in any kind of a scam? What if they were, in fact, just saying, hey, man, I've got a new track. Here's my CD. Do you want to buy it? And the guy said, I'd love to buy it. Now I'm intervening and I'm a jerk. You know, I'm, I'm making assumptions. I'm, I'm jumping to conclusions about a transaction that's none of my business. That's one. That's one way this goes bad. There are there. Are, I really saw three options. There's one option where I stop, create a, a little bit of a hey, what's going on here and give the tourist the opportunity to say, OK, thanks. Goodbye. And walk away and, and not be caught up in this. And that was what I was thinking I would do. And I didn't. And that's why I'm sitting here telling you about this. And I'm sure many of you have had similar situations where, uh, you know, look, I've, I've gotten into it with people in the past. I saw somebody who was mean to his dog on the street. Uh, he had actually tied the dog up and, and was was rough with the dog. And, and I, I had some words with him and it wasn't my dog and it wasn't my business, but but I, I made it my business. So that was many years ago. Um, but I was just saw this happen with these tourists. And so I thought maybe I stop and I try to I try to do something about this and it gets them to leave this guy alone. But then there then there's option B and option C. And option B is maybe these gentlemen on the street are just selling CDs and the tourist is happy to have this keepsake and everyone's happy and commerce is happening and art is being supported. And I'm just making assumptions about a scam that may not be a scam at all. It may just be a, 
a, a transaction benefiting the arts and entrepreneurship. And, a, you know, you know, everybody could have been, like I said, the tourist was smiling. Everybody could have been happy in this transaction. And, and so then I'm the guy who's jumped to conclusions, which also then turns into option C, which is if I make this my problem, it's just me. And there's three guys, as I said, all of whom were about my size, one of whom was actually a good bit bigger. And now I would never uh, try to instigate anything physical over something so minor as people harassing a tourist. But as you know, these things can escalate very quickly. And now it's one on three on the street. There's also a 10-year-old boy nearby. All of a sudden, the situation can get out of hand very quickly. And oh, by the way, I better be damn sure if I do have to defend myself that I haven't intervened in what was a totally innocuous situation where I'm the bad guy. So I know it's a small thing. And I know some of you are thinking, you know, Buck, why are you even, why even go through this? It, it just, it just has been bothering me. Because uh, I, I always try to, if I see something, uh, I try to do something about it. But I wasn't sure of what I was seeing. It wasn't my problem to solve. And... It also could have escalated something that was nothing. So, you know, the, I'm just walking you through. This was my mindset on the way. I went through all this, and this happened very quickly. And look, I, I look back. I mean, the, uh, the, you know, the tourist looked like he was just about done and walking away, and maybe he was happy. Maybe everybody was happy. And, but uh, it's amazing when you sit there and you think about all the different ways something like this can go. It's never as easy as it seems, is it? You know? And uh, no good deed goes unpunished, man. You think you're helping somebody out and you may be way off. So it's not, it's not easy. Uh, forget about playing the hero, just the good Samaritan. You don't know. You don't know. You don't always know. And things can, things can turn on you in a hurry. I've seen it and I've been around it. So anyway, all right, team, I appreciate you letting me uh, share that little uh, tidbit from today. Uh, we're going to close out the show, of course, on a, on a happy note in just a few minutes here. So uh, stay with me. Be right back. Hey, it's Buck back with you now. And uh, just wanted to change gears a bit from our discussion before uh, to the uh, all the really kind emails and uh, messages I got on Facebook and everything from from all of you about my discussion uh, with you regarding uh, fostering a dog. Uh, so I I'd, I'd looked into this even more. First of all, you guys all have hilarious uh, things to say about you know, what kind of dog you think I would like most. It's interesting. People really give you a sense of, of what they think of you based on what dog they think you will like. I'm very, for those of you who are curious, I am very partial to bulldogs of, of any kind. Uh, the only thing that really is, is right up there for me with bulldogs, and I, I do love all dogs. I even love mangy little chihuahuas and, you know, not as much as other dogs, but I like them. Uh, but I love bulldogs and also uh, Labradors, golden retrievers, those kinds of dogs. So I'm a bulldogs and retriever guy, I guess, uh, mostly bulldogs. My all-time favorite breed just in general, I, I'd have to say English bulldog. I think they're the cutest. I'm the biggest fan of, of English bulls, although I know they have all kinds of health problems, and so taking them on can be a bit of a a bit of an ordeal. One day, I'm hoping to get one. And I also appreciate the notes about how uh, Ms. Molly can get uh, drops of some kind or there's some treatment for uh, her allergy that over time will lessen it. So we're going we're gonna to look into that. 
so that we can foster. And I think fostering is a good interim step because she can certainly handle having a dog in the house for a month or two and we can see how it goes. But the uh, shelter I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, well, volunteering, but r- really fostering, uh, that's my vol- that would be my volunteer service. I, they have quite a collection of pups. I mentioned that there was a French bulldog that was uh, undergoing eye surgery, and so I thought it might have to have an eye patch. It did not actually have a patch in the photos, by the way, but it, I figured it would need one if it was going to have a cyst removed from its eye. And it was such a cute little dog, but it did have, you could see the cyst uh, right under its eyelid. Uh, I guess instead of that, it probably would just have one of those cones around its head, but an eye patch would be so much cooler. Uh, But there was a uh, really adorable Shih Tzu mix that was, uh, it was missing, well, yeah, it was missing an eye. There was a one-eyed Shih Tzu that I I thought about maybe, uh, maybe getting as, as a uh, pet to keep around for a little while and wait for it to get its forever home. There are all of these adorable dogs. I mean, there's so many of them. And I looked into it. I didn't realize, I knew that there were a lot of dogs that need homes. I didn't know that it's in the, in the millions every year get either picked up or turned into a shelter. And that, that was staggering. I, I did a little bit of research into this because I'm really thinking about it now. And there are so many dogs that that just that need a home. I, I didn't know that. I figured there were, I don't know, maybe a, a couple hundred thousand countrywide. I didn't think it was a couple of million every year uh, that get turned into shelters or get picked up that don't have owners. And a lot of them, as you know, unfortunately, uh, are put down by there are no kill shelters, but there are also some shelters that don't have the resources and they will put dogs down. So I'm really, I'm really looking to do this. I'm going to fill out the application. One thing I thought was pretty interesting though, was that the application is really, uh, is really intense. Uh, the application asks, you know, how many hours a day will you spend with the dog? What kind of domicile do you have? What is your square footage? Do you have outdoor space? Uh, What are your personal habits? Are you responsible? The application to foster one of these dogs, which I look, I understand it's a good thing. They don't want people who are irresponsible to be taking on one of these dogs. But the application to foster them is like you're, uh, I don't know, you're, you're applying to, well, it really is like you're applying to take care of children or something. I mean, they, they, they do a lot of vetting. Uh, they, they do a whole background check on you and they send somebody to your home to make sure that it's suitable for the animal. So I'm going to have to go through this whole process. And then, again, the only the big contingency here is really have to sit down and, and figure out with Molly if the allergies are something that we can, we need to have a backup plan in case the, her allergies are too bad uh, in the short term. Uh, usually it, it's not that bad, but I just want to make sure that if, if we take a dog for a month and after a week or two, Molly's having too much trouble with the, uh, the saliva or the dander or whatever it is that's causing the problem, that we have a, a great uh, friend Mom, if you're listening, you might be the backup plan. Somebody who might be able to take our adorable little friend for the last week or two if in, if there is a medical issue and, and Molly's uh, allergies get worse. Because I know that that can happen with some allergies. They actually get uh, exacerbated the more you're exposed to the, the allergen. So the, the place that I'm looking at is called Social Teas. And you can see it on Instagram. I mean, they just have, it's just one cute, little mangy puppy after another. I mean, they're mostly older dogs, I can tell. And a lot of them, 
almost entirely uh, uh, whatever mixed breed mutt, whatever we're supposed to call them. Does, if you're selling them in a New York City pet shop, they're designer dogs. But yeah, mutts. Uh, they're they're mixed breed. They're not you know American Kennel Club purebreds or whatever. Um, but they are so cute, and I mean, some of them you can tell they're, they're sweet dogs. Uh, but they, they've they've been on the wrong side of the tracks, you know. They've had a tough a tough go of it, so I'm really looking forward to doing that. I think it'll be good, and, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm telling you about it because I'm hoping to have uh, to be able to get this going within about a month or two. That's how long it'll take, by the way, to get through the whole process of setting. up. I'm just fostering. I'm not even adopting yet. We're going to foster, and then hopefully, if it goes well, move up uh, move up the chain, uh, move up the you know. Uh, the ranks and and go with full on adoption, but that's the that's the plan right now, and, and we'll have to see if I'm able to pull it off. But I really want to be able to take photos and and hang out with uh, a little a little furry friend that I've that I've fostered for a while. Throw some team buck gear on him. I mean, he's gonna fit right in. It's gonna be awesome. We kind of need a team buck mascot, uh, so that needs to happen. And uh, I think I think the Freedom Hut squad here. I think Ty and Amy would be cool if, if uh, they'd be cool with me bringing in a little foster friend. I will tell you one of the coolest things uh, on Sean Hannity's show, his staff is phenomenal. They're really just great people. And one of them had a foster lab that she was bringing in. And it was, I go in there like a little kid. It was adorable. I love playing with uh, the uh, team Hannity Labrador that uh, one of them was fostering for a while. All right. Enough dog talk from me today. Thank you so much team for hanging out. Tomorrow's freestyle Friday. We'll uh, get into some, substance as always but also i promise we will have a lot of fun uh download the show buck sexton with america now on itunes until tomorrow night my friends shields high